The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. Do one of these each week. Also do an EDU show. But on today's show, we've got a big bag of questions that Jim has been assembling. And we'll do our best to provide those answers. If you want to send in your own questions, just send them directly to Jim's email. Jim at JimHelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And put in the subject line that is a question for the podcast. Um, concise questions are usually um, usually more likely to make it onto the show. If they're extraordinarily detailed, uh, that usually means they're very specific to, to you or will take way too long to explain to our listening crowd. So as much as you can keep it... Uh, to a targeted, you know, focused question on one element or something is best. Although we do occasionally take an, a lengthy question and turn it into an EDU show. So there's always a chance for the, the more involved questions to end up over there. But uh, I'm going to ask Jim to come in now since we're a little tight on time today. And we can uh, hopefully dive into questions as soon as possible. Was that my cue? Yeah, if you're ready. Or we can talk about other stuff. No, no, no. We, we are ready. Uh, the only thing I would say, uh, Chris is right. So when, when you're sending us an email question, just think of me and how I would describe something on the show. Pithy, to the point, short, blunt. Don't think of Chris rambling on and on and on. And if you keep that in mind, your questions have a better chance of getting on. The you show. realize new listeners are going to think you're serious. I they won't get totally- the joke. You're, that, that's an inside joke for longtime listeners. <laughs> now, new listeners, that's no joke. You you, you listen to the show, you will see. I am to the point. Chris goes on and on. Okay. Um, before we begin, I do want to pause for station identification and a quick PSA. We should have announced this last week, and I never did. So a uh, bit I, of an apology. Do I know about this? But you probably do because everybody's heard of it by now. So this really isn't new news, okay. but there, there could be someone out there who hasn't heard this yet. The IRS has delayed catch-up contributions for people earning more than 
thousand dollars in 2023 wages, having to go into a Roth. 401k. They delayed it by two years. That was supposed to take effect January 1st of 2024. And what was going to happen is the employer, your employer, was supposed to look at your earnings for 2023. And if you earned more than $145,000 in wages, and it's box three wages on on your... um, Oh, God, I keep wanting to say 1099. It's not a 1099. Thank you. (laughs) It's box three wages uh, that they are going to look at because we had that question that uh, came. Actually, a couple of people had asked that question. But it's uh, box three wages that they are going to look at on there. And if you had more than $145,000, your catch-up contribution had to go into a Roth. Uh, private companies were complaining about this incessantly. They did not have the ability to program everything in, and they were threatening to remove the ability to any employee to make a catch-up contribution if the IRS moved forward with this. So the IRS blinked and said, hey, we're going to give you two more years. We're going to give you all the way to January 1st of 2026 to get the technology in place to automatically be scanning and looking for this and applying everything appropriately. And a lot of people don't know this. When Congress drafted this mandatory provision, this mandatory Roth provision, it made a mistake. And I know you find that hard to believe, listeners. Congress... The brightest people in the world, Congress made a mistake and deleted accidentally the part of the tax code that actually allowed catch-up contributions. So beginning next year, no one can make catch-up contributions. Congress has yet to fix that mistake. The IRS announced in the same release that they announced they were going to give an extension. They said, hey... Keep making catch-up contributions. We're going to overlook the mistake that the brilliant, absolutely brilliant, brilliant minds in Washington made. Because everybody knows there's nobody smarter on the face of this earth, except maybe every single fifth grader in the world, than Congress. Well, this, okay. this is, an, this is an, a symptom of rushing through all these things at the last minute. That's They keep doing that, and it's messy, and it causes this kind of stuff to go on it's the world we live in it's the world we live in okay i just wanted to announce that because we we should have announced it last week but we didn't we did receive i think about three or four questions on this provision so uh most of them were how are they going to figure out wages box three uh is my best understanding of what they're going to be looking at is box three wages all righty, so let's get into our regular questions. We're going to begin, as we always do, with a Social Security question. And new, we're then going to jump into a Irma question. And actually, folks, we're going to do two Irma questions and one Social Security question. Hmm. So okay. how's that, Chris? Yeah. Sounds we're exciting. We're going to have you talking a lot. Well, it's getting you to shut up is the hard thing. Hmm. But anyways, first Social Security question. Uh, no hint. But he's from a fine state. He's from a, oh, here's a hint. He's from the state I grew up in. Well, Massachusetts. 
of course. There you go. I knew you'd get this one. Mm-hmm. There you go. But a new listener may not know and couldn't pick up with my mastery of the English language mm-hmm. what state I was from. Okay, it says, hi, Jim and Chris. I'm a retired 30-plus-year Massachusetts government employee. I retired in 2010 and receive a pension. I am subject to the windfall elimination provision. Should I pause there and let you explain what that is or just read his question? Because he doesn't really get into what it is. I'll clarify it as part of my answer. How about that? Okay. I am subject to the windfall elimination provision, but I have worked in the private sector and just fully retired this month, August 2023. I will be 66 in October, and I may file for Social Security in January of 2024, three months before my full retirement age. The Social Security Administration application asks, when do I want my benefits to begin? I want my first check in February. Would the answer on the application about the beginning of benefits be January of 2024? Or should I put February 2024 when I would receive my first check? Also, is there a different future wage limit for filing in the same year as my full retirement age, but three months early? I have no idea what that last question is. Mm. Do you need me to read it again? Uh, it's got to be an earnings I, test uh, question. Um, okay. When he says I wage can read it limit, again if you that's got to be. Um, no, I took notes here. So, so um, first, the windfall elimination provision. He worked in a job where he did not contribute. He and his employer opted out of Social Security. So they had an alternative retirement system that was approved. Not anyone can just do this. Um, And so that changes the way his Social Security calculation is made for any work he did separate from that main career job at the state of Massachusetts. Um, And he said he's been working in the private sector as well. So he has some Social Security benefits, but they are effectively reduced due to the effects of this um, adjusted calculation for benefits. Uh, That's as deep as I'll go since it's not a WEP question. Plenty of questions we've answered in the past about WEP, windfall elimination provision. Um, His goal is to have his benefits start in February while his payments start in February. He wants his first check to be received, although it'll be an electronic deposit. It won't be a physical check. He wants that in February. Well, Social, Social Security pays one month in arrears. So that means to receive a benefit in February, you must be claiming benefits in January. So he was right for the with the first part when he said, you know, should I claim in January? Yes. He'll uh, ask in that application for his benefits to start in January. The first payment then will be deposited in February on a Wednesday. <laughs> uh, which Wednesday? I can't tell you because I don't, he didn't express uh, what day of the month was his birthday. Um, but it'll either be the second, third, or fourth Wednesday of each month is when they make those deposits, depending on uh, what part of the month you were born in, the first, third, middle, third, or last third of the month. Uh, With a few exceptions, sometimes you get on the first Wednesday of the month. That's rare circumstances. Um, And then his last kind of secondary question, when he asks about a future wage limit for the year he turns his full retirement age, I'm 
Um, I'm a little confused because he said he's retiring, so I'm not sure why the earnings test would even be a question on his mind. But yes, in fact, if he did earn, so if he's thinking about going back to work or something like that, if he goes back to work in 2024, he's earning money in 2024, which is the year he turns his full retirement age, that earnings test we always talk about, which in 2023 normally is $21,240. If you earn from work more than that, they're going to reduce your social security benefits a dollar for every $2 over that limit. In the year you turn your full retirement age, the, the limit is way higher and the offset is less. So the earnings limit for 2024 for him will be an inflation-adjusted 56520 And I say it like that because that, that limit's going to go up with inflation, but they haven't announced the inflation adjustment for 2024 yet. So it'll be somewhere north of $56,500 that he could earn in the year that he turns his full retirement age and not have the earnings test affect him. This doesn't really matter to most people. For him, I don't think it matters at all because he's retiring and it doesn't, you know, doesn't sound like he's going to working. He's going to be working in 2024. But if he went back to work, um, the other thing I will mention is that for most people, if you truly retire um, and then start your Social Security benefits, is the earnings test will not affect you because if you truly retire and have no more earnings while claiming your Social Security. Even if you earned a lot of money prior to the month you retired and prior to the month you claimed your Social Security, the earnings test doesn't matter because of the grace year provision. And we're getting a little deep in the weeds on this over here, but, but just know that as long as you don't continue to work while you're collecting Social Security, in the, you, know, you don't claim your Social Security until the month you've, after you've stopped working, if there's that kind of timing where you're not earning anymore, but you're on Social Security, the earnings test won't come back to bite you. Uh, plus, the earnings test goes away completely the month you turn your full retirement age, which for him is April of 2024. So um, not sure. Uh, maybe he's got some huge job. He's going to work in January, and he's worried about uh, earning more than $56,000 in January. Or maybe he thought the limit was a lot lower. Maybe... There's something I'm not picking up on in his unique circumstance that he didn't mention. But yes, if he's talking about the, he called it a wage limit. If he's talking about the earnings test, the earnings test number is much, much bigger. And then if you exceed that, the offset is only $1 for every $3 over that, that your social security benefit is reduced. So uh, they raise the limit and then make the rate of punishment less in the year you turn your full retirement age. Um. So yeah, I think I've touched on everything in his in his uh, email, at least what you shared with me, Jim. I think you nailed it. Nailed it. Well, thanks. Okay, we got two Irma questions next. How's that? Uh, can't wait. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this one um, is is new. It has to do with last week's shows. So that's why I wanted to throw it on. That's why we have okay. two Irma questions. Um, so I just wanted to, to do this one cause it kind of ties in, uh, hi Jim and Chris, see if he gives a hint of where he's from. Yes. If you want something to stump Chris with, I live in the state where the, Oh, this, you'll never get this one. I, oh, I didn't even know this one. If hmm. I need, <laughs> let me start over. If you need something to stump Chris with, I live in the state where the black eyed Susan is the state flower. Hmm. 
I don't think it's any state near me because that's when black-eyed Susans, I don't think, are common out here in the West. Um, They're very similar to coneflowers that we have out here. Hmm. It's got to be east, so maybe Tennessee? It could be, but according to this listener, we don't bet the questions. Oh, here's a, I'll give you a second hint. Oh See if you can redeem yourself for this state. It is the state that the lineage of my dogs, Mosby and Corbett, rest their souls, can trace their ancestors back to. Well, that's Maryland, isn't Eight, it? Because Chesapeake 1805, Bay. 1805, yeah, Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Chesapeake Bay Retrievers were allegedly. So you bailed uh, me out, um, thanks, because that's so, not. Yeah, that's not Tennessee. I, re- I redeemed you. Okay, here's their question. This is a short question about Irma. I know you can file form SSA 44 to appeal the Irma surcharge if a life-changing income-related event causes a reduction of income in a given tax year, which is what we spoke about at length last week. Mm-hmm. I know from your show and other resources. Social Security looks back two years to determine if there will be an additional Medicare surcharge. I have not heard you or anyone discuss this following scenario. What happens if you do not file the form and just pay the Irma surcharge for that year? But it turns out your income was lower than what your taxes were when the Irma limit was first estimated. Do you get a refund or credit for overpaying the Medicare surcharge that year? Keep up the informative show. Jim, you are brilliant. See that? And then he put in parentheses, yes, a self-serving comment to get my question answered. But it worked. I believe you since he put that second comment on there. Yeah. Usually the Jim, you are brilliant is uh self serving and injected by you, but uh <laughs> um we have not answered this question prior. Uh interesting thought process here, but it's uh missing the way Irma is implemented. Implemented, it's always on a two year delay. What they don't do is mysteriously then look at your income and decide, well, this year we're not going to look back two years. We're going to take your current earnings now that we know them and and make some kind of adjustment. The adjustment is as time goes by, that high earnings year falls older than two years ago and now doesn't affect you anymore. That's the resolution ultimately for it. What you're saying does not happen. He's essentially saying, and I'm going to use years to clarify this for people uh, to, to follow along a little better. So for 2023, uh, your IRMA, your pre- Medicare premium surcharge, is determined by your 2021 income tax return. Uh, let's say he retired subsequently after 2021. So here in 2023, he doesn't have much income, but he was he got a notification late in 2022 that his Medicare premiums for 2023 were going to be affected by Irma. And he is saying, well, what if I don't file the SSA 44 asking for relief? Won't they see at the end of 2023 when I filed my taxes that my income was much lower? Yeah, they'll see that, and that's going to affect your 2025 Irma calculation. They don't arbitrarily just decide to make the measure 
immediate or concurrent with your tax year, it's always got this two-year delay unless, and that's essentially what you're asking them to do with an SSA 44. You're not asking, you're not, the the form, the filing of the form or the fact that you had a life-changing event isn't a reduction in and of itself. What you're begging them to do is say, please, out of fairness to me, Please don't use two years ago because I've had a life-changing event. Please look at my current income. And I know you don't have my tax return yet, so I'm going to give you an estimate of what my earnings are for 2023. And because of the life-changing event, grant me this mercy. That's what you're asking for when you file the SSA 44, and then they will take your word for it. They'll take you. They'll redetermine your your uh, Irma based on your stated income you expect for 2023, and then they will in fact uh, look at it and check it. And if you lowballed them, and you uh, should have been in a higher Irma bracket, they're going to bill you back for it. What I doubt happens. But I don't know this for sure, is if you filed the SSA 44 and then maybe your income comes in even lower than you estimated, low enough to push you into even a lower IRMA bracket than what you estimated uh, your income estimates would cause you to be in. I know if you lowball them and then they find out it was higher, you get a bill. They get you, they'll charge you for, for, for that fact once they discover your true earnings with your 2023 tax return. But if you do it the other way, maybe you know you thought you were going to work all the year and then you didn't work and you didn't file a new SSA 44 or amend it, or I, I'm not sure how that process would even work. I haven't heard if they do the reverse. So I guess a secondary question is if you did file the SSA 44 and state a certain income, but then your real income turned out to be even lower than what you stated, will they give you credits for that? That I don't know, because I've not ever run into that. I've never seen that circumstance. That that might be um, a nice uh, rabbit hole question for me to ask somebody at the Social Security Administration. Was that my cue? That's your cue. All righty. Okay. You caught me clicked out of the oh. list of questions. I had to click <laughs> back into them. All right, so the final question also has to do with Irma. This one came in a while ago. Obviously, that last question came in recently. This one, November of 21. Whoa. How long are you <laughs> going to sit on this one <laughs> before dragging it well, up? <laughs> we're approaching two years. I wonder if this is a record. I don't know. But because the computer thing here just keeps the the emails i searched for keyword irma and this up. one popped up wow okay so hopefully this listener is even still with us <laughs> probably doesn't have irma affecting him anymore we'll see but it's it's ironic it's a 2021 question but the subject irma in 2023 bracket mm. release mm -hmm. so it is kind of good we're answering it in 2023 but it will apply to anyone, so that's why I'm getting to it. Yeah. People will see. Okay. Hi, Jim and Chris. I'm a longtime listener from the chilly state of Wisconsin and love your podcast. This is before we started asking for hints. I could have said this is a cold state, but uh, people would have not necessarily chose Wisconsin. I think they would have chose Alaska. 
I'm a longtime listener from the chilly state of Wisconsin and love your podcast. You are my go-to choice during my five-mile run every other day. Hmm. So very wow. good. Okay, you are correcto mango. We do not like Tom Brady either in this part of the country. Isn't it correcto did he write, mango? Did he, did he write correcto mango? Or are M-A-N-G-O. you just saying that? That's, no, correcto M A N G O. Out west here we say correcto mundo is what we say, but at least people I know in the west. Wisconsin is correcto mango. I, that's what he wrote. He says you are correcto mango. So you learn something new every mango. day. Today for me, that's it. That in Wisconsin <laughs> they say correcto mango. But he put it in quotation marks, so mm-hmm. I have no idea. But anyways, okay. we're not going to go down this <laughs> okay. rabbit hole. He put correct the mango. We do not like Tom Brady either in this part of the country. So mm. clearly Most I was talking about Most of the country doesn't. Pats. Just saying. Well, he's retired now, so cut him some slack. But in 2021, I no longer liked Tom Brady because he had left us mm. and was playing for the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. My question is related to the release of the Irma surcharge brackets that provide direction as to the limits I can report as income in a given year. I am retired, and I'm wondering how much income I can report this year, 2021, folks, report this year so I can stay within a bracket. Is there a known date as to when this information will get released for 2023 so I can do some planning before the end of 2021? So to make his question applicable to for today, mm-hmm. he's essentially saying, is there a known day as to when this information gets released for 2025 so I can do some planning before the end of 2023? How do you do the planning? I know you chatted about this in the past, and yeah. it's a pain for sure because they can change it. It's a they change the challenge. rules. Uh, it's a challenge in that... First, um, and I think it's a reasonable assumption these days, the assumption has to be made that inflation will increase the brackets. That isn't necessarily the case. They have the ability to do whatever they want to with the brackets. Congress can. So, uh, But I think it's reasonable at this point to assume those brackets are going to go up with inflation like the regular income tax brackets as well. The frustrating part is the amount of the increase in those brackets is well let me let me share you with you he was worried about his 2023 irma the date you would have known the brackets would have been the end of september of 2022 so back when you wrote to us in 2021 you were trying to do tax planning which we try to do for our clients as well in 2021 knowing that your 2021 agi is going to affect your 2023 irma and you're trying to, you're making some choices, maybe Roth conversions or, you know, people might wonder, well, how can you control your income? Well, you can choose a retirement date. You can choose choose whether or not you take consulting gigs. You can distribute from certain accounts, whether they're taxable as ordinary income or not. There's lots of stuff you can do to manipulate your income uh, proactively. And he was thinking of doing that and wanted to find out, gee, are they going to let me know in time? for me to know what the brackets are going to be so I can make these choices? And the answer is simply no. There's going to be a huge delay. They're not going to let you know until shortly before 2023 rolls around. So here we are in 2023. Um, First, you know, is there a known date? It's not a fixed date on the calendar, 
but I will tell you it's coming up shortly in the year. It's in the fall. Um, in 2020 and 2021, they released this information the very first, maybe the first week of November. They surprised at least me last year. I don't think this is a new policy. If it is, I'm sorry. If I, you know something, I should, probably should know if they have released a new policy on this. But it came out the end of September, the very end, last couple days of September, and that was a little surprising because that was earlier than normal. But it's still not time. It's not in a tax year that you can use to, you know, the the tax. Your income from 21 affects your 2023 bracket. You don't even know what the 2023 bracket is until most of the way through 2022. So you really, they steal from you the ability to do what he and we all want to do, which is specific tax planning, income recognition planning for a given tax year in anticipation of IRMA effects. And they make it really hard. It's just, you got to use estimates. It's going to be, you know, same thing with, uh, forecasting taxes down the road. They can always change the rules. Uh, this, I think, is a little more predictable because um, they're generally expected to increase with inflation. So as long as you've got fairly calm and predictable inflation going on, um, these Irma, the, the spike in inflation that we've seen recently, you know, we can always look for silver linings and stuff like that, uh, provided relief to people with Irma in a lot of cases because those brackets grew a lot faster than expected. So some people who probably thought they were going to get smacked with Irma escaped because uh, inflation, the spike in inflation the couple of, last couple of years has pushed up the brackets faster than anyone uh, reasonably expected back in the day. So, uh, But that's the frustrating part. The information is not released to you at any time during the tax year in which you can do something about it. It's not until almost the end of the next tax year and then you only have a few months basically to just moan about it and say, darn, I missed it. You know, I, I tried to do it. I missed it a little bit or whatever. And and know that the bummer part about Irma brackets, too, is they're a cliff, meaning as soon as you go a dollar over, the full force of the next bracket hits you. So you can do planning if you just get a, miss it by a little bit. Uh, you can end up in a, a higher bracket than expected. So we always recommend that people stay away from the edge because uh, it's pretty easy to screw it up or pretty easy for your assumptions to be off enough where you would find yourself just a foot over the edge when you should be a foot this side of the edge. So we stay stay back, you know, 10, 15 yards from the edge uh, when you're trying to proactively strategize around this stuff. Same kind of warning you'll get at the zoo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stay back. The elephant's trunk probably can't reach you there, but sometimes they, you know, they put a little extra effort into it and you might be in danger. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, let's get into general questions then, folks. We're going to kind of concentrate on questions that kind of tie in and relate to the EDU series we're doing on dialogue. Uh, before we jump into that, we had a clarification from last week's show, I believe it was, yeah, last week's show, with one of the hints. I remember the gentleman who lived in the state where a city a dynamited millionaire uh, homes. Oh, yeah. They condemned them uh, or something, yeah. Yeah, so he added some clarity because we were wondering why they dynamite them? Why didn't they, they rip them down or whatever? He says, to further your knowledge of California history... 
Several blocks of millionaire homes were dynamited and destroyed to stop the great fire of San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. Oh, so it was a fire break. It was a fire break. And that explains why they used dynamite. Uh, That's what they had handy back then. Hmm. They didn't really have uh, front end loaders and bulldozers and things like that. Hmm. Interesting. Um, So anyways, he just wanted to thank us for answering his question, but provide clarity on his state hint. Okay, so we've got a few questions that I want to go to. Uh, I'm going to read two questions. They're kind of similar, and then you and I can uh, expand on them. Both came in, have to do with the fun number, which ties into a lot of what our EDU series uh, right now is covering. So this one begins, no hint, just begins first. Thank you for your podcast and all the great content you and Chris provide. My question involves what should be included in fun. More specifically, I have a vacation home at a beach, which we carry a mortgage on and will for the next 20 years. Should I include that as part of my fun? And then the next question, well, actually, no, let's answer this one first, then I'll get to the next. They're similar, but... Not quite enough to treat them both the same. Mm -hmm. How would you handle this? So we're going to have to make some assumptions, Chris. This is a second home. He says it's a vacation home. We're going to assume it's a secondary home. It's not his primary home. And, of course, he is carrying a 20-year mortgage on this primary home and all the expenses with it. Minimum dignity floor or fun? Mm -hmm. What would you say? So this is a, a nuanced interpretation of the minimum dignity floor concept and the fun idea. And the way I would, I have this happen. I've run through this and the first time it happened with a client, it kind of stumped me a little and we thought through it and talked it over. And it re- requires some input from the clients to determine how they want to treat it. Um, at face value, any loan, any liability, legal obligation to pay is treated as a minimum dignity floor expense by default. So that's the, that's kind of the starting spot. However, the minimum dignity floor is supposed to represent those expenses that you want to make sure are covered even if you run out of assets. So let that sink in again, because I think a lot of people miss it. And once you think of it that way, the world becomes much clearer, at least the world according to Jim and Chris and their retirement planning approach. The minimum dignity floor expenses... Uh, are those expenses you want to be sure are covered if you ran out of assets, because we're going to propose you cover those expenses with lifetime guaranteed secure income, which will continue to come in even if you run out of assets. So then that begs the question, is this a mortgage? Is this a property you'd want to keep? It's so important. You're going to want to keep it even if you ran out of your other assets. And the client's answer to that question gives us our answer. If this is a home that ultimately is going to go to kids, it's a family home, ancestral home, has really, really strong emotional importance, whatever the reason, if it's that important that if you answer the question, would you want to keep this home even if you ran out of assets? If the answer is yes, then that's minimum dignity floor. If the answer is 
well, no, it's a, it's a beach home. It's a secondary home. If we run out of assets, even before we hit zero on those assets, we will sell that property. And as long as that property sale is enough to cover the mortgage, then those mortgage payments are now part of your fund because that property is only going to be held as long as you can afford to have fun. And when you run out of assets, you can't really afford to have fun other than if you happen to have a little excess secure income coming in above and beyond your minimum dignity floor. So I believe that's the way Jim is going to look at it as well. I haven't probably talked to him about it in these very specific terms, but I think if you look at the minimum dignity floor the way I just described, it becomes clear. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree um, that it needs to be looked at that way. I've often said uh, the minimum dignity for failure to satisfy the minimum dignity for a person will suffer an economic, financial, or medical hardship. That's kind of how I used to describe for years the minimum dignity floor. If you can't pay for your primary residence, you will definitely suffer an economic, financial, and medical hardship. If you're living out in the street, that won't be very healthy for you. If you can't pay the mortgage of a vacation home, but you can certainly pay the mortgage on your primary residence or it's fully paid for and you're maintaining it, you would suffer an economic hardship. So, but not a uh, medical or economic, financial or medical hardship. You could suffer uh, a financial, yes. You could suffer an economic hardship, yes. So it would necessitate, though, a discussion, as Chris said. And if I was still meeting with clients and still doing the programming, that's exactly what I would do in that situation. How important is this place to you? Do you need to cover it? If you had no money, come hella high water, you want to maintain this? Or is this an asset you are willing to walk away from? And that would determine if we would declare it in minimum dignity floor. Because if it's in minimum dignity floor and we're going to cover it, it would require more of their wealth to pay for it in a guaranteed sense. And it pulls it out of fun. Now, the vacation home itself is fun. I get that. But pulling those dollars out and making sure they're going to last forever would cost them a certain amount of dollars. The only thing that makes this unique, Chris, it is, has an end date. Yeah, I was just going to point that out too. So it, that does make it more interesting and will change how we would propose funding it, but we would fund it with the intention of the minimum dignity floor. We wouldn't fund a mortgage with lifetime guaranteed secure income normally. No. Uh, no, because unless you have it by default, like a pension, right? You have plenty of pension income to cover all the mortgages you have. Is the secure income covering the mortgage? Yes. Did we ask you to go out and buy more to cover the mortgage? No, we would not do that. Because first of all, as you're pointing out right now, the mortgage doesn't go forever. It has an end date, you know, generally maximum 30 years in length. So, so it isn't going to last technically forever it has an end date, a known balance, those types of things. So on, a, on an issue like that, we oftentimes look at it as, as kind of a set aside or a, you know, sinking fund or, a, you know, some other creative way of looking at it. But we're we're going to give it the priority of a minimum dignity floor. 
Right. And in this case, it had a 20-year remaining uh, expectancy on it. Mm -hmm. So funding it would be a lot easier because of the the known end date. Mm -hmm. A reasonable discount rate as well could be used. And you could figure out how much to to earmark initially and pull that out of your fund number calculation. Granted, it truly is fun money. You're just moving it out of the fun number and saying, hey, here's my total fund number. I'm going to break it up even more and I'm going to remove the mortgage that is going so I don't um, accidentally spend money that needs to go to maintaining this home on other fun things. So kind of creating a see-through portfolio of your fun number, if you will. That's what I would recommend to this person uh, or, or if I was working with someone in this situation. Now, would they want to cover it with guaranteed income? They could, especially with quote-unquote relatively high current interest rates, certainly not historically high. We're no way near where interest rates were in the early 80s and late 70s. No way near where they were. They were at 18% in 81 on the 30-year bond. So we're no way near that. But this listener could, or any listener, if you have an end date, and let's just assume this vacation home is an absolute must he wants to protect and you want to simplify things, you could get a period certain annuity. Mm -hmm. Not saying you will, and I'm not saying most people listening to this podcast would, but many people do. We've recently done this with someone in the office. But you can buy a period certain annuity that would pay for the 20 years. And the insurance company would say, hey, if you give us X amount of dollars today, we will guarantee you an annual payment that will equal your mortgage payment every year for 20 years. That way you could put it almost on autopilot. You're not going to have to worry about investing those dollars. You're not going to have to worry about rising interest rate or dropping interest rates. Hopefully your mortgage has a fixed rate. So the payments are going to stay level for the next 20 years. And you're kind of neutralizing that out. And it gives you clarity. And obviously, you know, yeah, obviously for our lister, listeners, we to, to do that, you'd want to analyze the benefits of that versus just paying it off. And with the interest rates that have changed over time, there might be an interest arbitrage opportunity where what Jim described makes perfect sense rather than paying it off. Um, right, right, exactly. And I wasn't going there, but you are 100% correct. If the embedded interest rate inside the annuity, because they're higher right now, is greater than your mortgage, there is arbitrage there that would benefit you. Now, if it was the other way around, rather than give the money to the insurance company, you would want to pay the mortgage down. And prior to the, I hate saying big rise in interest rates. They, they, they have. When you're near zero and you went to four on the 10-year, that's a huge rise. Yeah, it's a bump, yes. But historically speaking, it's still got a long way to go. But just a few years ago, we would never make that recommendation. It was always pay the damn thing off because interest rates that were embedded inside the annuities were even lower than what most people's mortgage rates were. Now I think that has turned. Anyways, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much. I like the way you explained it. 
we're pretty much seeing eye to eye on this. So let's go to the next fun number uh, email that we recently got, if I can find it. You can. Uh, okay, yeah. here it is. <laughs> uh, this gentleman also is from uh, California. We got a lot of Californians. That's a big state with a lot of people. True. Okay. This is, oh, he gives his, almost said his real name. This is George in Redlands, California. On this week's show, a writer wrote in that they retired at 62 directly into their slow-go phase and then with COVID transitioned to their no-go phase. That's the one, listeners, yeah. if you remember, they wanted me to share with everyone that life can change at a moment's notice. And this gentleman suffered, uh, I forgot what it was. He put, we, we mentioned it last week. He shared with us uh, what it was. But it forced him to retire directly into slow go. And then COVID hit. Talk about bad timing. And, of course, the whole world came to a halt for two years. And by time COVID uh, resolved, he had went from slow go already into no go. This gentleman wants to share more, Chris. Although I am not totally on board with your fun number concept, and that's fine. That's why we're having this dialogue. Oz is one of many approaches. He says, although I am not entirely on board with your fun number concept, I am entirely on board with the minimum dignity floor concept. At what point would it make sense to get an annuity to add to the pension and Social Security to make sure someone's minimum dignity floor is covered. How do you invest and utilize the portfolio until such an annuity is purchased? And if I did use your fund number concept, how would you invest the fund money while you are in the go-go years? My go-go years could be very long. I am only 57 and I just retired. So, I can answer the second one. The first one, he's asking, at what point does it make sense for me to, he didn't say for me, but I think that's what he's asking, for me to get an annuity to add to the pension, so I'm assuming he has a pension, and Social Security to make sure my minimum dignity floor is covered. Well, it's all about the projections, I guess, to prepare for the day when you might buy an annuity uh, for this purpose, specifically to cover any minimum dignity floor expenses that are not projected to be covered by your existing Social Security and pension. So the way we look at it is look at the first year in which you have full Social Security and pension coming in. Think of that as kind of the bellwether year that determines are you ever going to be able to cover your minimum dignity floor with your secure income? Most people, the answer is yes, because most people, um, surprisingly, uh, you know, to, to a lot of people, their minimum dignity floor expenses, once their Social Security is fully on, as long as they didn't turn it on too early, um, that just the Social Security by itself for a married couple in particular uh, coming in is enough to cover their minimum dignity floor at first, but very soon thereafter, uh, for for most people, the minimum dignity floor starts growing beyond the uh, so just Social Security. So people with pensions 
have an extra cushion. And he doesn't share, this person doesn't share how big the pension is. But I suspect that uh, even in a higher cost of living state like California, that the combined Social Security and pension is likely when it's fully on, when both of those are fully turned on, will cover the minimum dignity floor. That's just Chris, a, can I interrupt? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. I, I'm going to first apologize. I click email. I don't print now. So I started with one email, and then when you were talking, I clicked back in, and I ended up reading the rest of a second email. So it's fine. We're answering it. So his first sentence actually does give the pension amount. I started on his second sentence thinking I was in the original email I started reading. I just realized when you were talking, holy moly, this is someone else's question. So that's fine. We're going to answer this, but then I'm going to circle back to the original one. His pension is $2,400 a month at 57. Uh, he's already collecting it, $2,400 a month. Yep. Uh, he gets health care from his union for just 300 a month. Mm-hmm. And when he is 67, so another 12 years, excuse me, another 10 years, he will receive in today's dollars another 2400 a month. Uh, so it bumps up to 4800 a month total? It'll be 4800 a month total. He doesn't say if his union pension has a COLA adjustment or not. I'm guessing... Because it's a union pension, it does. Most union and nearly all government pensions have some type of COLA adjustment. But uh, I can't say for certain mm-hmm. his union pension has a COLA adjustment And how much Social Security does he have, does he say? At 67, his full retirement age, he will have 2400 a month. Oh, I thought his pension bumped up for some reason at 67. Okay. No. Nope. So his total will be $4,800 a month. Correct. Which, which will be inflation adjusted be, between now and then. But $4,800 a month uh, times 12 is $57,600, which is on the low end of the range I usually see for minimum dignity floor in California. Um, does he say if he's, if he's single or married, he's going to make a difference there? But, but He has a wife. He does okay. have a wife. Okay. And so when he collects his Social Security, even if she doesn't have her own, she'd be able to collect some. So I don't know if that 2400 includes the spousal benefit or what have you. So I don't think we have the whole story here. But the point is, with the 57.6 he's, deci- he's describing, and he could increase that even more by delaying to 70, um, he's likely to just about cover his minimum dignity floor with the pension and Social Security if the if his wife is you know got some kind uh, I would think the wife has got at least some uh, spousal benefit another twelve hundred dollars or so on there um, at some point although we don't know her age and when she could claim it etc so we're just guessing but with that on top of the fifty seven six they're probably just at the point of at that moment covering the minimum dignity floor but then after that it's going to pull away from their secure income almost for sure the minimum dignity floor at least the way we build it generally has inflation rates that outpace the inflation assumed on pension and social security dollars. So even if it just barely covers it initially, after a while, it's not going to. After maybe a short while, it's not going to. So his question is, when do I consider it? In our approach, the years between now, when he's 57 and 67, when his social security and pension both are turned on, We would consider that the delay period where we just need to budget for that and fund it with distributions. Um, 
which he obviously has other monies because he's talking about buying an annuity. So he must have other money somewhere. Then he has one. one he has, just so okay. you know, he has one point six million. Okay. So obviously that 10 year period where he's only collecting his pension alone for 10 years before he turns on social security, he's going to have a shortfall there with both the minimum dignity floor and then whatever fund that he's spending on. But at some point it's likely if he wants to take a approach similar to ours, which is to cover the minimum dignity floor expenses with secure income, he's going to need to acquire more secure income, which the only reasonable way there's really two ways on his plate One is to delay Social Security, another three years from 67. That'll give him a better value in secure income than an income annuity, almost for sure, unless interest rates 10 years from now are extraordinarily high. Uh, But then an income annuity at some point, maybe as early as 67, but probably somewhere between 67 and 80 is my guess based on the circumstances he's describing. That's where I would likely see it. In a, in a projection we're doing for a couple like this. And so money day one here in retirement at 57, he needs to earmark in our opinion for that future purchase. So the when to turn it on is all going to be about the relationship between the minimum dignity floor and the secure income when that shortage exists, when you feel comfortable doing it, when you're basically knowing that, yes, I definitely want to do this. So you're not um, doubting the decision that all that kind of plays a role in this. But if it's too far out, I think a plan written plan that other people know if you're using an advisor, make sure they know your intentions with this money so that if you, you know, if age really catches up to you before you've turned on this extra income annuity, that someone knows what you were doing and you haven't forgotten why the heck you had this reserve money and you, and you, you know, you spend it on something else when you should have remembered that it was for this eventual annuity purchase. Cause I think in his case, it's going to be down the road a ways. I, I would generally not find it favorable for someone 57 to consider an income annuity to cover minimum dignity floor expenses. I, I agree. I, I, don't, I agree. I don't see cases where that makes sense. I agree with two caveats that I want mm-hmm. to implore this person to consider. First, delaying Social Security is buying an annuity. Mm-hmm. And it is buying the best annuity because it is guaranteed inflation adjusted to unlimited cost of living increases. Do not turn on Social Security at 67 if you need additional guaranteed lifetime income, only to later buy a private annuity. You're wasting your money. You truly are. The money that you will forego for three years by delaying Social Security, if you could take those dollars and instead of delaying them, just start collecting them. If you were to collect them and amass them for three years, even at a guaranteed 5% and you know just kept rolling them in one year guaranteed CDs at 5%, at the end of three years, you would not have the ability to buy from a private insurance company, a fully COLA-protected, unlimited COLA income stream with those dollars that would come anywhere near 
what three years of delayed retirement credits have done to your Social Security. So the first thing, I agree with Chris, I don't feel you have enough secure income for your California minimum dignity floor. Maybe if you were living in, in the, the fields of Kansas that I drive through on my way to Ohio, which I'll be doing in another four or five, uh, excuse me, uh, another six or seven weeks from now. Maybe if you lived out there where cost of living is very low, 50 something thousand a year would be ample minimum dignity floor. California, not so much. So I'm going to em- encourage you to delay your Social Security to 70, especially because you told us you had a wife. You indicate nothing from your wife. Does she work? Is she a stay-at-home mom? Is she going to be totally dependent on your survivorship Social Security? Getting yours to age 70 would be crucial from a survivor standpoint. That's going to be the the first thing that, that I would recommend. The second thing, and I am so hesitant. Should I even go down this? No. If we have time at the end of today's show, because I want to get to this next question that I glossed over. If for some reason this next question goes quick and Chris, he's the keeper of time. If he says, hey, Jim, we won't be able to do any delving into anything else at this point. No problem. Then I'm going to I'm going to pause there because I want to get into the the next part. Uh, I'll cover what I was going to explain to this guy on another show. It has to do with annuities. But um, I would just encourage him to not delay Social Security to evaluate that because there's no private annuity comes anywhere near Social Security. Then everything else Chris said makes sense. What you should do or could start doing now, since you're crunching the numbers, and if you want to kind of calculate your fun number, you can um, start projecting what you need to reserve now to purchase your annuity in the future. And we talked on previous podcasts on how to do that. I would encourage you to do that and start getting a clearer picture of what you're going to need to reserve but I would maximize your social security first. So the other question, which had to do with um, the the fund money. Okay, he wanted to, where is the correct question? I don't wanna get to the wrong question and I think I did again. (laughs) Oh, you can tell that this is a live unrehearsed show. I need to okay. convince Jim to embrace folders in his inbox. Yeah, you have to show me how to do that. Yeah. You just need okay. a folder for today in there, and then you'll have just the questions for today. You can mark them and everything. So, but. Okay, here's the one we just answered. Here's the one we want. Okay. So I began the question by reading his first sentence. Then I got off on a tangent and I accidentally clicked into the wrong email and started on the second sentence, which is where I should have been in this one. He's the one that began on this week's show. A writer listener wrote in that they retired at 62 directly into the slow go and with COVID transitioned into no go. That was their first line. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of went off on a tangent. I clicked into the wrong email. Second line, which is where I thought I was last time continues. But just because you are in no-go doesn't mean you do not need fun money. 
Too often we hear about spending on fun as revolving only around travel and cruises and major hobbies and classic cars. But all too often we forget that fun is also charitable donations, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, graduation presents for grandkids, dining out with loved ones, buying toys and technology and all of those things like that. Most people will want to spend on these things for their entire lives. And I thought that was a good point because we've spoken about that before. And there's another question. And I totally I agree to... with his point and our approach is not inconsistent with his point. No, not at all. It's That's just the, the bad thing. labeling. When we adopted the slow go, no go terminology, which is elegant in its approach, and we really appreciate it. Uh, but the word, the, the no-go, really just, it, it implies the wrong thing, that you're sitting on the front porch rocking in a chair and not, not doing anything for fun that costs money. And that's not reality. And that's not how we treat it in the projections. Uh, I joke with people frequently that, you know, if it were me, I'd call it slower go, where it's the go-go, and then slow-go, and then slower-go. Um, ultimately, you know, no-go is the last day before you're gone. So uh, I agree with him wholeheartedly that there's got to be a base level that you protect for, for the older you. Um, but the reason why we talk about cruises and all those other things is I find having ha having done hundreds and hundreds of plans now over time that if you're not traveling and you don't have an expensive hobby – your fun budget is drastically lower. Just the type of fun that people have in the, exactly what he described, giving gifts, doing some dining out, doing some, some hobbies locally that aren't super expensive hobbies like racehorses and you know things like that. There's certainly those that are very expensive. But if they're more mundane type of hobbies, gardening, those types of things, your fun budget can be on an annualized basis much, much lower than in years where you were traveling, fixing up that, you know, that, that Mustang that you, you know, had in high school, all those, you know, those types of expensive endeavors. Once those are faded away, the fun budget goes down noticeably. Exactly. And we've spoken about this in the past. I've actually received another email. I was trying to find it while you were talking to kill three birds with one stone here. Um, and I'm sure I'll find it shortly. We have always said, once you take care of your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, once you have pulled out from your portfolio any dollars that need to go to those expenses, whether those dollars are going to be put into an annuity and let the annuity cover the shortage after Social Security and pension, or going to be put into an investment account and you're going to satisfy it with a withdrawal strategy, it's totally up to you. You just have to determine those dollars and pull them out of your portfolio, the whole see-through portfolio concept. Once you do that... Then you address your aging-related expenses and your long-term care expenses. They're in the same category. Aging-related help you stay in your house by hiring landscapers and house cleaners, even people to come prepare food for you if need be. Um, just anything you need to do to take care of your lifestyle. Once you reserve money for that and Long-term care expenses, which are the expenses we more often think about with aging, they're to take care of your life 
assisted living, uh, nursing facilities, true long-term care, can't do two of six activities of daily living. Once you put a plan in place for that, whatever that plan may be, and assign any liquid retirement assets to it, pull it out of your portfolio. It's still going to be invested, but it's out of your portfolio, so to speak, as you're calculating your fund number, uh, or you're going to dedicate illiquid assets to it, home equity or equity in vacation properties or whatever it is. Once you take care of that as well, then you go into guaranteed inheritance. If that's important or not, you're going to fund that. Well, pull more dollars out for the guaranteed inheritance. Then your buffer, which I love, especially this time of year with NFL kickoff, just a couple of days from now, as we record this, it happened yesterday or beyond after you listen to this, this is coming out on Saturday and um, kickoff is on Thursday. So it wouldn't be yesterday, it'd be two days ago. But I love this analogy in football season. Your buffer is the offensive line that stands between the opposing team's defense or otherwise known as life and your fun number, otherwise known as the quarterback. And that defense is trying to get through the offensive line and, and destroy your fund number or your quarterback. The buffer helps protect your fund money from all the unknowns that could happen. Once all that's in place, folks, what's left? Discretionary expenses. And that we categorize as fun. But it can be anything. And we have said this in the past. I know we have. Because donating money to charity can be fun. Giving inheritances while you're alive. I have always encouraged my clients to do that. I don't meet enough with people anymore. I do on the investment side, but not on the planning side. But I know staff talks to people about that. You don't have to wait until you die. Once we figure out your fun number, and of course, it's not a set it and forget it. You're going to monitor it. We can't drill that into your heads enough. This should be monitored every year. But as long as you're monitoring it and looking at it, you have this budget. You don't have to wait until you die to give your guaranteed inheritance. If it gives you more fun now, start giving from your fun number or start peeling from your guaranteed inheritance reserve. If you're saying, hey, I want to make sure my daughter, I'm just making this up, has half a million dollars. So you could put that half a million off to the side. But it doesn't mean you have to wait till you die. If you want to start giving her some of that half million now, you absolutely can. Or you can give it from your own fund number if you'd like. Or give it from your fund number. And if later on you need it, well, you got her guaranteed inheritance. Take it from there. Money is fungible. These reserves or what we call positions are fungible. But any type of discretionary expense falls into the fun category. It's not just travel. It can be anything that you list and then some. It truly can. People find joy in spending money in different ways. So it doesn't have to be, I agree, listener, just travel. And it can be all of the things you listed and then some.
The idea is to make sure, because remember, my, my tagline is your promise for your permission. You are promising the older you, their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, minimum dignity for, minimum lifestyle expenses, what it should have been called. But that is protected. You are going to give them an explicit promise. In return, they are going to give you permission to spend on fun. That's the whole idea of retirement planning. But once that explicit promise has been made, then you have to decide how important aging and long-term care reserve, guaranteed inheritance, and buffer are. The only other expenses is everything else. So fun, if we were going to call it an academic uh, term, would be discretionary expenses. I just wanted to clarify Mm -hmm. that. Nice. Well, on that note, we'll have to wrap, although we did get through six questions today. Um, even though and I apologize for out. muffing up the last two. but uh, And the funny thing is, is they're both almost the same size. So it, it's, it, I had to keep clicking back and forth. It's like, oh, my God, these emails look identical, but they're two totally different emails. So when I clicked in and started reading the second sentence... It's only later I realized, uh-oh, that's the wrong <laughs> email. Good. I think people figured it out. So, All right. So, yeah, if you want to send in your own questions for the show, like I said at the top of the show, you send them directly to Jim. Jim at JimHelps.com is the email. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. And in the subject line, put that it's a question for the podcast. And uh, we appreciate everybody listening and appreciate everybody sending in questions. And, Jim, uh, you enjoy your first weekend of NFL football. I know I will. Okay, who is the uh, Broncos playing? Uh, Broncos are playing. All I know is I'm going to be traveling during it, so I have to record it and not listen. Oh, they're playing. They're playing the Raiders. That's right. Josh McDaniels, the Raiders. I got to root for the Raiders because I'm a Josh McDaniels fan after everything he did for the Pats. That's right. You guys are playing the Raiders. We're going to have our butts handed to us. We being the Patriots, (laughs) Um, we're playing the Eagles. So. they, we, we have no offensive line, so we have no buffer. <laughs> our, our team has a very poor buffer, and uh, the, the pass rush of the Eagles is second to none, in my opinion. So I think uh, Mac Jones is going to be on his hiney quite a bit, and I don't think we're going to win. But we shall see. That's the fun part. You never know. That's why we play, you never play know. the game. Nope. So it's, uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. Never underestimate Bill Belichick, so we'll see what True. he can do. So the fall has officially arrived when NFL season has started, at least at my home. That's what it feels like. So Absolutely, as far as fall, I'm concerned. Everyone. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. 
Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 